um, and like we've said today, we're starting this uh, first Sunday in Advent, um, and Advent is this four-week period, four weeks that lead up into the celebration of Christmas, which um, everybody is getting ready for. You see all the decorations. Maybe you have some up yourself. Um, it's the four weeks that lead up to Christmas that are a time of preparation, that the church really, it dates back all the way to the fourth century, believe it or not, when Christmas, the date of Christmas, was affixed to December 25th. Um, and so it became this celebration of the, that the church would celebrate leading up into that date. So, um, so we've been celebrating that as the Big C Church since then, which is really, really cool. Um, but, but I imagine that if you and I compared notes um, in terms of our, our Advent and Christmas experience, I would dare to say that um, there are probably a lot of differences between us in stories and experiences. But at the same time, I also imagine that we probably have a lot in common. We probably have a lot in common. Who, for instance, has ever been Black Friday shopping or ordering, right? Black Friday, have you ever, ever been in your entire life? I'm not saying this year, ever, ever been, yes. Um, have you ever opened up that box of Christmas decorations, maybe you did this like yesterday or something, and you took out the lights, and lo and behold, the lights that you had carefully wrapped Last year, yeah, I see a hand, a couple hands shooting up right here. Cup, carefully wrapped last year, what happened to them? You're like, there's some, there, that elf on the shelf, like maybe, like he's coming in there and messing with things, and then you spend hours trying to pull things apart and half of them don't work. Um, who has ever had an advent calendar with the chocolates? Who has ever eaten all the chocolates in one sitting from your advent calendar? Yes. Right? Hands off. Um, I think there's probably something else that we have in common. And, and um, by the way, this is confession time. It's not going to leave the room here. Who has ever searched for gifts that had been hidden in your house? Did you find them? Yes. Did you unwrap them? No. Did you look inside and play with them? No. Ever, anybody? Okay. Um, who has ever bought a present early? Like, say, like in July or something, you're like, this is the cutest thing for so-and-so. I'm going to get that for them for Christmas. And you bought that present early, and you hid it so well that you could not find it. And then you find it, like, you know, a decade later, and you're like, oh, Susie would have really liked that, right? Wouldn't that be great? Um, but here's another confession. Have you ever received a gift that you knew was re-gifted? Another confession. Have you ever re-gifted a gift? Did you feel guilty? No, not at all, right? But uh, when, when it comes to mind, what comes to mind when we think of this idea of re-gifting? That's the title of our Advent sermon series here. Um, the things that usually come to mind about reasons for re-gifting are thoughtlessness, right? What else? Being cheap, being lazy, being trying to maybe environmentally friendly too. You want to pass on something that you got that you're not going to use. And, and they're usually negative, right? They tend to have a more negative connotation. People tend to look down on regifting, even though we've all done it. Um, but what if we were to flip this idea of regifting on its head and, and instead turned it into a positive thing? A positive thing. Instead of passing on something that we don't want, what if we turn that into something that we give something that we do? Or something that we could keep to ourselves, but instead we choose not to. 
And, and that's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is that the dynamic that set up the very first Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is a story of God not keeping to God's self not keeping to himself, a story of angels and shepherds and Mary and Joseph and then the people of Israel going on to pass forth what they had received and sharing that with the world around them. So in a sense, re-gifting in that sense is actually in the spirit of Advent when we think of it that way. And so for four weeks, we're, we're basically declaring a gift from God. And traditionally, there's a word that's associated with each uh, candle that we light. The, the, and it's not to be kept to ourselves, but shared. And the first candle that we light and the first gift of God that we share is that of hope. Is that of hope. Traditionally celebrated on this first Sunday of Advent. And I don't know if you knew this, but re-gifting hope has a history. Regifting hope has a history. Because if there was ever a people who regifted hope, it was a group of people 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, and this may be new information for you, but for generations before that, there was always a handful of people, always a remnant of people who were Jewish, who waited every single day for the arrival, not of Santa, but the Messiah. They waited for years and years and years, and every day they woke up wondering if today was going to be the day. Today was going to be the day that God's promise 2,000 years ago would be fulfilled. But the problem was, generation after generation went by, and nothing happened, and there was no fulfillment. And, and what happened also was that many of those people peeled off from being the hopeful, from being the faithful. They, they peeled off and they went to other things or their practice of religion just became that, just a practice of things that they do and went through the motions of. But in the meantime, there was always a group who still trusted, who still continued to pass on the hope even though they and their grandparents and their great-grandparents hadn't seen anything. And today, Today we're going to be looking at the story of two people who were part of that remnant group. People who passed down hope and received that hope. And, and this, this story is found in the Gospel of Luke. We have four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to be looking in the story of Luke. And, and I think this story is relevant to us because at some point in our lives, at some point for those of us who follow Christ, God will be so quiet and so seemingly inactive and so silent that you will look around and you will reach that point and ask, why am I doing this in the first place? Why am I spending time? Why am I worshiping? Why am I giving? Why am I trusting? Why am I serving? Why am I obeying? Why am I not moving on? Why, why am I missing out? Why am I living in hope? It's kind of like that misplaced gift wonder if, if you actually bought it or it's just a figment of your imagination, if your hope has been misplaced. There will be a time that you'll wonder, why am I doing this? Why, why should I even pass this on to my kids or bring them into this faith? And for some of us, there are seasons of that. 
Some of us, there are years of that. Sometimes there are periods of that. And, and in our attempt to be faithful, we ask ourselves, why? Where is this going? And if that's you, if you've ever been there, or maybe you are there right now, if you wonder if your hope has been misplaced, you're not alone. The story of the two characters that we're looking at today is somewhat your story, <clears throat> and it's somewhat my story. So we're going to look in Luke chapter 1, starting in verses 5 to 6. So Luke, author, tells us, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So let's just pause there. So a little background here. We're told from the beginning of this story that both Elizabeth and Zechariah are coming from a background of priests. They're both coming from a priestly line. In other words, in today's kind of imagery, they're both pastor's kids. There's both pe preacher's kids. And they grew up in that. They, it wasn't their choice. Their parents were, and so they were. And both of them, the story goes, as Luke tells us, that both of them were righteous, meaning that they were doing everything right, that they lived based on God's promises, and they lived their lives as if a Messiah was coming. They lived in hope. They lived expectantly. They lived as Christmas was coming. But the problem was, there was really no evidence it was. And that's the thing, that hope itself may have minimal evidence. Actually, I would change that and say most of the time, hope has minimal evidence. And so first of all, we realize that for Zechariah and for Elizabeth, God's promise had not been fulfilled. That this promise that had been made to Abraham 2,000 years, so, so think about this, this is 2,000 years ago. So 2,000 years before that, Abraham was made a promise by God where God said this in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And a lot happened since then. I don't know if you've ever opened your Bible. There's a lot between Genesis and then when we get to the New Testament. A lot happened. Because you fast forward the story and there's this, this guy named Jacob who then goes on to have 12 sons. And then what ha there's a turn of events that they end up in Egypt and they multiply there, and then they're enslaved there. And then Moses, if you remember Moses, he gets, he takes them out of Egypt, and they arrive in this promised land. And all along, so far in the story, there's not a really a fulfillment of that promise, but then the story keeps going. And the rise of King David, remember David and Goliath, right? He killed the giant. Well, David, he rises to power, and he becomes powerful. And it's kind of like the golden age that everybody would look to and say, wow, this is it, but it wasn't. It wasn't. In a way, part of the promise had become fulfilled, but not all of it. Not, not to all nations. Not that all the earth would be blessed. Not that there would be a king that would come and come to a culmination of, and lead God's people. And then what happens is David's son comes to power, named Solomon. The Song of Solomon. He kind of is involved with that. And it's a great time, and it's a powerful time. And, and once again, Israel is doing wonderful. But God doesn't fulfill his promise there yet either in that power and prestige and riches. 
And then what happens is his kids fight over the power. And, and not only that, but it goes on that Israel winds up splitting north and south into two countries. Into two countries, and it falls apart. And then it's conquered first by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And then the Jewish people are scattered across the land with no home to worship God. And then it changes hands 20 times. What happened? What happened? Where's God? Right? Where's God in all that junk? All that stuff that's happening. Like, what is happening here? Where not God supposed to fulfill the pro- his promises? Well, then get this. 65 BC, the Romans come into Jerusalem. And a general named by the name of Pompey, this is an illustration of this. The general named Pompey marches his army into Jerusalem. The Jews are, are flailing and wondering what's going to happen. God for sure will save them. But Pompey walks into the temple and nothing happens. But he continues to walk into the temple. And there's this very sacred area called the Holy of Holies. And it's a place that only once a year a priest would enter and offer incense and all that. And and Pompey goes to enter the Holy of Holies and all the priests are standing there wondering, God is going to strike him dead. Pompey takes a step through the curtain into the Holy of Holies and desecrates the place. God does nothing. God does nothing. 65 B.C., God does nothing, but on the sidelines, (coughs) on the sidelines, there's a little boy named Zechariah, a little boy named Zechariah whose dad is a priest at that time, and his dad was serving, and his dad continued to offer hope to little Zechariah and tell him about this coming Messiah, even though their temple had been desecrated, even though the Romans had taken over. But Zechariah was not as many of the Jews at that time. Many of the Jews turned away from temple worship, turned away from their belief that there was hope, that there was a coming Messiah. Many integrated into Greek and Roman life and influence, taking up positions of tax collectors and whatnot. But it wasn't everybody. There was a remnant, Zechariah, Elizabeth, They served and they hoped. They served and they hoped. And and so it hadn't been fulfilled. God's promise had not been fulfilled. But then we see, personally, you have to ask the question, well, how's your hope working out for you guys, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke tells us, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So secondly, their hope in having children personally had not been fulfilled. Their hope for their people, but their hope personally. And in cult, that culture, by the way, it's good for us to understand this, it was always the woman's fault. There was no knowledge, no medical knowledge of infertility issues or what was going on there. It was always thought to be the woman's fault. And it was very, very important in their culture, too. You know, for many, many women today, it's very important about having children, but it was even especially important because for many people, that was all a woman at that time was good for. And then there was another thing, a religious stigma, a religious stigma, a theory that God granted children to people who he blessed, that God decided who, what babies lived and what ones died. And in people's minds, God had chosen to curse Elizabeth for some unknown reason. 
God had done nothing. Nothing. No promises, right? Nothing for Elizabeth and Zechariah all these years. No evidence at all, personally or corporately. I think that's the same challenge for us today, right? Why didn't God come through? Why didn't God help me here? Why didn't God save this person? Why didn't God heal? Why didn't God fix the world either? Why? Where is he? And anybody in their right mind would have gone to Elizabeth and Zechariah and told them what many people often tell us. It's not going to happen, right? God, if there ever was a God, has probably abandoned you. But if we had said that to them, we would have been wrong. The reason Luke begins his gospel with this story is to demonstrate that hope, despite the evidence, is not misplaced. There will will be times when there will be absolutely zero evidence. There's going to be nothing to keep you holding on. And you may be in a season of life where you wonder if God cares, if God exists, and if Jesus is coming. And the answer to that is yes. Yes. Because believe it or not, hope sometimes surprises us, as it did for Zechariah. So Luke continues, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So we have to understand that there were like 23 different groups of priests, and in order to decide who would go into the temple at the high holy days, they would cast lots, right? Basically, like, roll dice, like, see who's up for grabs here. And this was like a a once-in-a-lifetime chance. And it was also said that that casting of lots was to be God-ordained, that God was deciding who the person was to be entering in. And, And the priest, the priest that was chosen for this special job, would, remember this, would go to the curtain outside the desecrated, that had been desecrated, the desecrated Holy of Holies, believed the place where God dwells and would offer incense and a prayer in a very, very sacred moment to atone for the sins of his people. And that was the job assigned to that priest. Well, when the time, when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Zechariah's in there, and then we're told an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw, saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. So, so imagine this picture. The very spot, the very place of his people's disappointment, right on that curtain of the Holy of Holies, where Zechariah is standing, comes the greatest surprise for Zechariah. And, and, I mean, I think about this. Have you ever been someplace that you thought you were alone, right? And then all of a sudden, like, you walk around the corner and you're like, ah, right? Like, that was a good little scream there. Like, ah, like somebody surprises you or you're, like, at work really focusing. And then somebody's like, hey, what did you think about? And you're, like, jump. You're startled. I mean, I think, like, that was exactly, like, like, what do you do, right? Like, I think Zechariah, he was just caught by surprise. He's not expecting anything to happen here. And then we see that this, this angel, this angel that encounters him, it's kind of like the standard angel response in the Bible. Uh, you know, he always has to start out by saying, do not be afraid. It's a standard angel response. Um, they have to start that conversation that way because when people would see an angel, they're scary. Not only 
is it surprise factor, but it's scare factor. I mean, I have to tell you, like, people tell today, like, modern-day stories of, like, the cute little angel, like, like, visit by an angel, touched by an angel, Roma Downey, love the show. You know, all these cute, wonderful, beautiful angels. Not Bible angels. <laughs> Not Bible angels. People say, I want God to speak to me. And I'm like, hey, you know what? If he would speak to me through an angel, I'd tell that angel, like, dial back that scary factor, right? Take it down to a one, and it's, you're still scary. I mean, this is like a messenger of God, literally. That, that's what angel means. And think, too. Think. Zechariah, he's, talked to, he's mentioned as blameless and righteous. He had nothing to be afraid about when he was facing God. I mean, you or I, we would be blabbering messes. Confessing everything, like fourth grade, oh my gosh, I cheated on that test. Like, oh, I did this. I passed this person in traffic. I did, said that. I said these words. I, I did, like, we would just go on and on and on. And Zechariah, he's standing there. But the response of the angel to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Interesting. Your prayer has been heard. I would like to hear that sometime, wouldn't you? Your prayer has been heard. Like, just a confirmation, right? Confirmation texts, like confirmation from God. Wouldn't that be great? And I would like that confirmation, too, from a small, non-scary angel. But think about that. That would be enough, wouldn't it? Just your prayers have been heard, Chris. Your prayers have been heard, John. Your prayers have been heard, Frank. Your prayers have been heard. That would be enough. But the angel continues. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He'll bring back many of the people of Israel. Think about that. Bring back the very thing that we were talking about, the people who had fell away. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And this John would become a famous John. A famous John named who? John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, not the Baptist, like the Baptist denomination, but John the Baptizer, who would come to bring back the people to the Lord their God, because people had abandoned. And I love what Zechariah says in response, very diplomatic response. Luke tells us, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I love this part. I am an old man and, what does he say? And my wife is well along in years. He says, I'm old, she's well along in years. That's great things to say when you're like, you know, trying to make nice, nice here. But, but I think he shows us though, it's a reminder, a reminder that hope is never easy. It's never easy, but it's always brave. Hope is never easy, but it's always brave. He, imagine that, after seeing an angel, the scary angel, I like the non-scary one, but the scary angel, Zechariah, had difficulty believing. I think for us, that lets off, us off the hook if we struggle. He's seeing an angel, like, and we we're, we're struggling too. In other words, he's saying, I'm with you. I'm with you, angel, but you're late. We've been praying a long time here, angel. 
we've been praying a long time, and I'm not sure what to expect. But then the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. Whoa. Gabriel, by the way, is known as the angel of severity. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now, get this, you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day that happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true. When? Say this together. At their appointed time. At their appointed time. And that's a good question that I've often asked. Why was this guy made mute, right? Like that, that's a great response. Like, okay, well, you don't believe me? Shh, like, you're going to be silent. You know, have you ever had laryngitis and, like, you can't talk? You know, that's bad enough. But, but why is Zechariah made mute when we have many other people in the Bible, many other stories that talk about people that argue and wrestle with God, and, and they're given a pass, you know, once again, Gabriel is that angel of severity. Some people go to that as a reasoning. But I think it's because of this. Remember, remember when, when Zechariah is in that temple and he's at the Holy of Holies burning incense. Remember the people waiting outside? They're waiting outside. They're praying. They're waiting for him. And, and believe it or not, um, the priest that was called to enter in, they were told that don't stay long. Rabbinical sources tell us they were told don't stay long. And actually... Other rabbis, other, other priests and leaders would come and tell them, don't make a long prayer. You know, want to know why? Because we don't want to think that you were taken up by God or that you were burned alive or that something you're not going to come back to us. The people were praying. They were praying for the well-being of the priest. And so they were worried that he was staying too long worried because they don't want to be worried on the day of atonement like this is a one and done deal make the incense say the prayer and then leave and come out and get this when when Zechariah or whatever priest was assigned uh, when they would come out of the holy of holies and out of the temple to the people that were praying there the last part of that priest's job was to give a benediction the last part of their job was to come out and to verbally speak, to speak that the sins of the people had been forgiven. And guess what Zechariah cannot do? He cannot speak. Interesting. Interesting. He cannot give the benediction because the atonement is not finished. The atonement of God is incomplete. It's a sign. This is less about Zechariah and this is more about what was going on. And see, folks, hope sees the gift in the silence. Hope sees the gift in the silence. In the silence of Zechariah, there is hope and it's a gift. It's a gift to the people about what is to come. And so the story goes on. Elizabeth discovers her pregnancy and of course nine months Zechariah is silent. Echoing God's silence for the last 400 years before, by the way. But I think when it comes to silence in our lives, isn't it true that silence often transforms our hope? That silence, if we give it, silence has the power to turn us, to transform us from the inside out. And for many of us, Christmas is usually anything but silent, right? I mean, you, got, you turn on the radio, you got Mariah Carey singing or screaming or whatever she does, like, you know, whatever. she's supposed to be like the queen of Christmas or whatever, it's not, that's not actually true, but um, squirrel. Um, but anyway, but Christmas is usually not silent. The preparation, the time leading up to it, but silence helps us to prepare ourselves, helps to prepare for Jesus to do something we never expected him to do. I remember when I was a seminary student, 
was learning how to do ministry and minister to people. Um, I, the lead pastor I was working with um, showed me how to do hospital visits, <clears throat> go and visit with people, pray with them in the hospital. And I remember this one time, it was during the Advent season, there was a gentleman who was in the hospital, and, and my pastor told me, you know, you go ahead, you're, go, you can go by yourself now. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And so there was a gentleman in the hospital. Um, I remember this very, very uh, sharply. He was in the hospital, and it was a Sunday night. And if you've ever been to a hospital on like a Sunday evening, there's something really like, there's a holy space in place there. Um, hard to describe what that is. But I remember entering that hospital and it's very quiet. The nurses are kind of walking through. And I remember going to his room and visiting with him, uh, having a prayer. Um, it didn't look very hopeful for him, by the way. And, and I remember just like sitting there by his bedside, having a word of prayer with him. And I remember just feeling that like almost like little tap on the shoulder. Like just to say that regardless of what happens here, Chris, there's hope. There's hope. I am, I am here. There's hope in the silence. And, and of course, with each other, you know, we may re-gift words of hope with words, we may give people words, but I think also sitting in silence with someone can be just as great a gift. A gift of presence, a gift in the silence. And we're told that after this time of silence, Elizabeth gives birth to this boy that she names John, but even at the same time though, her cousin, Mary, receives news from another angel, another angelic source, that she too would be pregnant. And she too would be pregnant, but her pregnancy, as miraculous as it would be, would be to birth the Messiah, the one that John would come to prepare for. See, I think Advent itself, the season of preparation, is a reminder for us a reminder for us, as it was for them, that our hope is not in vain. Our hope is not in vain. That hope is something that we either repress or we pass on. We pass on generation to generation. Even when we don't see it, when there's no evidence, when we're not sure of what's going on, when we look back, we see that every generation before Elizabeth and Je Zechariah's time, there was a remnant that regifted their hope that passed it on. And Zechariah and Elizabeth decided that that hope was worth it. They walked blamelessly because of it without knowing how it would all turn out or unfold. And they would become thankful for who had passed on that hope to them. God came and did what he planned to do. And every nation because of it would be blessed. And I think for us, this is your story. It's my story. It's our dilemma. Do we hold on to that hope? Even when there's no evidence, do we let go? The good news is that it's normal. The good news is that Advent is a reminder our hope is not in vain. Will you hold on just a little bit longer? Will you be reminded? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.